Hi, and welcome to the Ministry Network Podcast. I'm your host, James Baird. Today, we'll continue our conversation with Dr. Harry Reeder. Dr. Reeder has over 40 years of pastoral experience in church planting and revitalization. Today, he'll share his advice on preaching to revitalize your church and church discipline. The Ministry Network Podcast is sponsored by Westminster Theological Seminary. To learn more about their new online programs, visit ministrynetwork.com forward slash degree. Now, let's talk with Dr. Reeder. Could you tell us a little bit more about how you would help a pastor in a church revitalization situation plan and execute their sermons? Yeah. Well, first of all, don't assume that you're preaching to people who've never heard a Bible text preached, and so don't be condescending. On the other hand, do not assume theological acumen or do not assume biblical knowledge. Don't assume that. You've got to start with focused sermons. I mean, you know, you may be a 45-minute preacher, and you're going to get there someday, but my guess is in a church revitalization, that's not where you're going to start. And you want to take a text. You want them to see how rich and glorious God's Word is through expository preaching. But it's not, as you know, not verse by verse, just commenting on something. You're you're getting them, and you get the preaching text. And as I learned at Westminster, the telos from uh, Jay Adams, what is the purpose of that text? And bring it to focus. What is the appropriate manifestation of Jesus from the text? Don't what today in the name of Christ-centered preaching, so many guys are just allegorizing Jesus into or out of a text. But where is the trajectory? How does it point to the preeminence of Christ? Uh, Old Testament to New, New Testament to Old, and really develop that and learn that you got to learn, particularly in revitalization, the two-minute warning for a preacher is not at the end of the sermon, it's at the beginning. You got two minutes to get their attention. My guess is, in revitalization, they have not been exposed to good sermons. So, they're not ready to say, oh, I can't wait to hear the word. They're coming in with their already patterns of coloring in the zeros on the bulletin to uh, consulting their uh, iPhone to all of that. So when you step up, you got two minutes. You got to do about three things in two minutes. Number one, what you're saying is important and it's going to be it's going to be fun, enjoyable, challenging. This demands your, you want to listen to this. Your introduction has got to do that without telling people you want to listen to this. You've got to come up with an introduction that makes them want to, maybe it's a problem you're going to solve for them in the text or in life. Maybe it's a story that sets it up. You've got to connect them to the text and to the theme and to the fact that you don't want to miss this, and you got two minutes to do that as a revitalization preacher. And then you've got about 28 to 30 minutes more where you can expound this, and then you've got to have some takeaway that's consistent with the purpose of that text that will, when embraced, is going to change something in their life. Mm, That's wonderful advice. I think that there are a few pastors I've ever heard that are as good at capturing a congregation's attention in those two minutes than you. 
Would you mind giving us an example of some other pastors that you've listened to that you think do a great job of that opening introduction? Well, he'll tell you he's not a preacher, but Richard Pratt is excellent. Listen to his talks. Sinclair Ferguson, excellent. They know how to get you right at the beginning. Now, I think there's some preachers who by the force of their preaching and over a period of time create within you a desire that they don't need to to draw you in in that two minutes, like a Martin Lloyd-Jones. The force of his presence and his opening and his presentation. I, I think you'll search in vain for an opening remark in the pastoral preaching of Martin Lloyd-Jones that was directed with humor. He just forced the importance of it upon you. I think Jim Boyce did a good job of that. They used different things, but they had a way in the introduction to let you know you don't want to miss what's coming. Now, there are multiple mechanisms. The text may have a problem, and you're going to present that problem to them in the introduction, and that we are going to solve this problem. The text may have something that you can say, so why did Abraham get God all the way down to 10 righteous and then quit? I mean, why didn't he get it down to Lot? I mean, why didn't he keep negotiating? Well, I think I can answer that for you. Come on to the text with me. Those are the kind of things that you look for to do. Mm -hmm. I know that R.C. Sproul used to say that what you need to do is look into the text and find the point of drama. Where is the drama in the text? And that sounds like what you're getting at. Yeah, R.C., he was a master at these things that I think are crucial in teaching preaching. Number one, the introduction. Number two, the connecting statements, how you move people through the text and through the points of your sermon. Number three, the points of your sermon come out of the text to move you through the text. Number four, you got to use illustrations that don't need to be illustrated. And then uh, number five is he always brought you to a point of action at the end. But R.C. was another one of those great preachers. Oh, and the other thing that R.C. really helped me on is you need to do whatever you need to do to be properly prepared and make that time commitment, not for complexity, but for simplicity. I spend 22 to 26 hours on a Sunday morning sermon. I don't preach it. I don't spend that time to accentuate complexity. I spend that time to promote simplicity and clarity. And that's what you spend your time. And then you want to so imbibe that sermon that you are free from your notes when you preach. Now, I realize I, there's a lot of people listening to this that are going to disagree, and they're going to quote to me Jonathan Edwards and his reading of his text. And if you can preach like Jonathan Edwards reading your text, then go for it. But And I'm not saying you don't have a manuscript, and I'm not saying you don't take copious. I'm just saying you've got to connect to people. You're not chewing up paper and spitting it out. This is not a talk. It is not a lecture. It is the preaching of God's Word, where God's Word has taken hold of you and is coming through you with passion, persuasion, and pleading to those. You are beseeching people. You are imploring people. And I think that, that you've got to be free from your notes and connected to the people. 
Dr. Breeder, I'm wondering now if we can get into the brass tacks of something that I imagine is very difficult for a lot of pastors in church revitalization, and that's the role of church discipline. What advice would you give to a pastor that is trying to practice biblical church discipline in a church revitalization situation? Yeah, so let's be controversial. So I inherited a church that three of the session members didn't know the Lord. And it didn't take long to be around them to know it. So I, you know, I said, well, do I do church discipline? Well, who's going to do the church discipline? The three elders that don't know the Lord are going to discipline themselves? Well, are you going to appeal to Presbytery? Well, you might as well go ahead and shut it down and start over. So I just decided these guys, as I talked with them, I came to the conclusion these are not wolves in sheep clothing nor are they sheep in wolves' clothing. These are unbelievers. In some cases, their wife just told them to be elders (laughs) because they didn't want the church to close. They weren't there out of malevolence. If they were, then I'd have probably called in the presbytery to move for church discipline. But they were there just out of ignorance and to some degree, just like they would have volunteered in a mason's organization because they needed people to stay functioning. So I said, okay, I'm going to take them where they are. And normally you want your church to be the place that you're sending out evangelists. But I realized my church was not an embassy of the kingdom. My church was a mission field. And it started right in my session. The two elders that knew the Lord, one died of leukemia three months after I got there. The other one got transferred. So I was left with those three, and uh, we went to work. So praise the Lord, they eventually came to Christ. Now, they were military men, and they had that gruff personality, but I was able to meet that and get along with them very well. You know, the real power structure in the church was about 10 women, and I met them. I, I started a ladies' Bible study. And they began to change their heart, their desire. They began to embrace the biblical truth. And so in about six months to a year, things began to change. And then people started getting converted and being added to the church with their joy and excitement with the gospel. I said, you know, I'm not going to start with special discipline. I'm going to start with general discipline which is basically the means of grace applied with clarity and patience. And that's where I started. Now, if, it, if things hadn't turned out, would I have had to go to special discipline? You know, if I got some guy that's an unbeliever, he's an elder, and he's fighting everything, yep, I, I would have gotten there. But listen, if by the time I got there, I would have had elders there who were ready to do that discipline, and that we didn't have to call in the presbytery. To me... Special discipline is a blessing, it's restorative, and it needs to be a part of the church. I can tell you at Briarwood, our discipline committee, which is constantly at work attempting to win and restore people and deal with issue, we have a church of 4,300, so we maintain anywhere from probably three to six cases continually. But we don't run to that we first run to our shepherding ministry. The other day, a guy said, well, he said, I guess I'm under discipline. I said, no, you're under shepherding. Now, we may get to discipline, but you're under shepherding right now. That's where you are. And I want you to come to Christ. I want you to repent, and I want you to be conformed to Christ. 
And so, you know, that's where we are. But this is going to be misunderstood, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. I think special discipline, in a sense, is like war for a nation. It's not your first movement. It's your last resort after having shepherded with patience and kindness, etc. Now, periodically, when you've got someone in a position of leadership that's destroying the flock, then you got to go to church discipline immediately. And I understand that. But by and large, when I'm dealing with my flock, the first movement that I go to is general discipline with focused, in-depth, faithful shepherding of people over the issues with the full realization that special discipline is available and is the next step if necessary. And we teach people about church discipline in the new members class, that that's part of the church and one of the marks of the church. By the way, one other thing. I think you ought to, either from Matthew 18 or other texts, you ought to build some reference and exposition of church discipline in your preaching ministry from time to time so that people are aware of it. That's a good word. Now, how would you counsel a pastor who's in a situation where they've gone through the discipline process and sadly had to end on biblical grounds in an excommunication, but the individual continues to come back to the church even after being excommunicated and is supported by a part of the congregation who feels like the church discipline process was unjust? How would you help a pastor in that situation? Well, wow. You know, I've never had that. That's interesting. No, I've never had that. And I think I've never had that because whenever we've got to a point of excommunication and in case of officers, deposition, we went through it with such focus and consistency and patience that it's never happened. I think if that's happening, that you might go back and take a look at the process of what you went through to get to excommunication. I think if you do it rightly, the message gets out. Now, in the case that you've raised, if he's still coming, which, by the way, I don't think you can stop them from doing that. We have had people that have been excommunicated that came, and I think of three off the top of my head, and two repented and uh, stood before the church and asked for forgiveness. And they started coming back after, well, it was a couple of years. But in this case, it sounds like you've excommunicated. They're still coming and defiantly, and people are clustering around them. Then if that was the case, I'd have the session call those people together. And in the words of the business world, we'd go up on the mountain. And it wouldn't be Mount Calvary. It'd be Mount Sinai. Here's the law. You cannot do this. This is not going to happen. You're not going to support that. And if necessary, and we have to move to church discipline, we will. I mean, that just sounds like defiance, a lack of their church vows of being submissive to the elders, and a a refusal to deal with the peace and purity of the church. So I think those people that are clustering around him would then be objects of church discipline if that's what's taking place, if they are causing dissension by their support of this individual who is attending the church. If there was a sexual immorality dynamic, particularly predatorial, I would probably go to a restraining order. 
But if it's just church discipline because they, whatever, I don't think you can stop them from coming. But if people are clustering around them to cause a faction in the church, then they would become a focus of church discipline. So what I'm hearing you say is, if you're in that situation, first go back and make sure your process was solid, that you clearly communicated to the congregation how the case was handled. And if it then looks as if the message was clear, but now there's willful defiance, there needs to be, like you said, a Mount Sinai moment. That's right. We need to have a meeting, and this is, hey, this is the way this is going forward, and this will not be tolerated. Got it. That's really helpful. Well, Dr. Reeder, I want to end on a positive note. I was wondering, do you have a go-to book of the Bible that encourages you as someone who's been engaged in church revitalization? Well, that's not hard at all. (laughs) Book of Romans. For me, Romans is the Mount Everest of the 66 mountain peaks. I love Romans. In revitalization, of course, I love Revelation chapter 1 and 2, where Jesus gives the paradigm for revitalization. I love 1 Timothy and Titus, which are handbooks on revitalization. As Timothy goes to revitalize Ephesus and Titus goes to revitalize the churches in Crete, So I love those. I love the book of Ephesians, uh, Christ and the church, the thematic dynamics of Christ and the church, not only the individual in union with Christ, but the relationship that the church has with Christ and Christ to his church. So I think those would be the ones up front that I enjoy. I love to preach from the Old Testament because you can surprise people with the trajectories to Christ. They, oh my, I didn't see that. They get pretty excited when you deal with the continuity and diversity issues of old to new. So I think all of that's really exciting to me. But I would say the book of Romans and then Romans 8, I just love that chapter. And it was Sinclair Ferguson at Westminster that got me excited about that years ago. I love Ephesians. And I love Jesus' treatment of the seven churches in Revelation and the handbooks on revitalization in First Timothy and Titus. Wow, those are wonderful. Well, Pastor Reader, thank you so much for this interview. I know our network is just going to love the wisdom and the insights you've provided. And they've, they've gotten a real mentor moment here, I think, from you. So we're so thankful for that. And we hope that you'll be able to join us in the future again, if you can find some time for us. Well, absolutely. It's been my privilege. I thank the Lord for your ministry. I thank the Lord for what Westminster is doing. I have one comment. Everything I said today, I am somewhere between zero and 100% effective. (laughs) Sounds good. I imagine that you're well over the 50% mark, though. It depends on who you're talking to. Tune in next time to hear Dr. Alistair Begg talk about church leadership. In the meantime, visit ministrynetwork.com forward slash degree to learn more about the new online offerings available at Westminster Theological Seminary.